shall not fall. Those words are taken directly from verses 23 and 24 of our psalm today. I did not plan that. Thank you, Brandon. Well, this morning I intend to be a gardener. I intend to do some planting and I intend to pull some weeds. Planting seeds and pulling weeds is my task today. Let me ask you a question as we begin. Which one do you think it's more difficult to believe and to tolerate? The fact that God allows the righteous to suffer or the fact that God allows the wicked to prosper? Or perhaps to take it a step further, that God allows the wicked to prosper at the expense of his people at times. How how difficult is it for you to live with that? And in fact, how do we live with those truths? Well, Psalm 37 this morning addresses that problem and guides us in a picture of how we are called to live. And as we saw earlier, Psalm 73 is a beautiful companion to this psalm. So the title of my, my sermon this morning is Faithful Living, and by that I mean that we would be living by faith. This psalm calls us to live with faith despite the seemingly incomprehensible problem that is presented to us in the prosperity of those who are godless and wicked and crooked and following after the ways of the world, while all the while we perhaps are suffering even at their expense. So this morning, this psalm, like the others that I've been preaching from the last few months, is a wisdom psalm, and as such, it teaches us something about godly wisdom, and in this case, teaching us how to live in the world in a wise way in light of these things. And it basically does this. It it directs our attention to focus on God, who is our faithful Lord, despite the ways that the wicked around us, the godless, may prosper. So with that, I would invite Stephen Beatty to come and read this passage for us this morning. Thank you, Stephen. I am trying to preserve some of my voice, and he has a wonderful voice, so thank you, Stephen. Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. 
The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Thank you. Let's pray together. That's a beautiful psalm. May we worship you because of it, Lord, as we apply it to our lives and understand who you are. This morning, as I preach, Lord, I pray that you would um, disrupt those among us who are too comfortable and that you would bring comfort to those of us who are disrupted, and that you would do it for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, what does it look like to live faithfully when the wicked prosper, and perhaps even prosper at our expense, as this psalm has showed us? Well, at first I want to show you from this psalm the explicit callings that we receive and the implied or implicit temptations that we would naturally face when we see the wicked around us, those who are godless following after the ways of the world, prospering while perhaps we're not. So the first temptation that we see is directed towards the wicked themselves, the godless. We see that in verse 1. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. This really serves as sort of a summary of all the temptations that we would face both towards those around us and also towards the Lord. This word fret 
Uh, we could understand that to mean worry, but really what it means literally in the Hebrew is to become hot, to kindle, to burn with anger, to get excited. So basically it means to, to worry and to get all worked up and to be anxious. And yet we're told, fret not because of the evildoers. And yet we see in verse 2 yet another calling based on an implied or implicit temptation to not be envious of the wrongdoers. Do not be envious or fret over the wrongdoers. Envy is like jealousy. Proverbs tells us that envy makes the bones rot. Have you ever been jealous of somebody? Doesn't that sound like a fitting description that you just sort of waste away from the inside out when you feel jealousy towards somebody? And so this passage acknowledges that while we see the prosperity of those who are not following after the Lord, we have a natural temptation to engage with them with some sort of an anger and a jealousy and some sort of a, a worrisomeness about worrying what they're going to do. And yet we see in verse 2 the reasons why we should not do this. The reason why we should not do this in verse 2 says, For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb, or as the NIV puts it, the green plant. So what we see there is that there is a complete impermanence to the godless, the wicked, the crooked, those who may be oppressing, those who may be causing us to suffer. And so we should not be fixated upon their prosperity, but we should focus rather on the Lord. So that's, in, in summary, how we're tempted to engage with the world around us. But how, do we, how are we tempted to engage in relationship with God? Well, we see that chiefly in this passage from verses 3 through 7. And what, what we have there is the same explicit calling, but it comes with what seems to be the implied or implicit temptation that we would naturally face when we see this prosperity all around us of, of those who are not even following after the Lord, and yet they have this life that's, uh, that's so easy, like Psalm 73 was talking about. And so the first temptation we would face would naturally be that we wouldn't trust God, that we would not trust Him. And so we would be tempted to believe, perhaps, that He doesn't care about me, and that if He does care about me, He's powerless to do anything to help me. While all the, the wicked around me, while all the godless, all those who are prospering and following after the ways of the world, they're doing what they need to do to, to make themselves happy and they're receiving great prosperity and blessing. Yeah, perhaps he doesn't care about me. Perhaps he's unable to help me. And I think that causes us to rely on ourselves as opposed to him and it causes us to not see the benefit of following after the Lord. That's what the guy, the, the psalmist in Psalm 73 is dealing with. He's actually feeling guilty of that envy himself as he looks on to the prosperity of the wicked. So we essentially would have this temptation to abandon our faith and to abandon a way of life that demonstrates that faith, ultimately resulting in if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat them, join them. And yet we have this explicit calling in verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So what we see there is this expression of heartfelt faith coming from the inside that's congruent with the actions on the outside. We have trust in the Lord and we also do good. And when we dwell in the land, we're essentially living where the Lord has called us to be through our circumstances. And he's asking us to be faithful. That's the calling. He knows what the temptation is when we see the prosperity of those around us who are not following after the Lord, and he just calls us to be faithful in this. The next temptation that we would see 
and naturally would result is not only that we would be tempted to not trust the Lord, but we would actually be tempted to resent the Lord. I mean, why would God allow the godless, the wicked, the crooked, those who are following after the ways of the world to prosper and have this easy life while I'm trying to follow after the Lord and my life is messed up? My relationships are messed up. My finances are messed up. My house won't sell, you know, whatever the case may be. Why do nice guys finish last? Lord, I deserve better than this. Do you hear the entitlement in that? Do you hear the entitlement in that that says, God should bless me. God should give me X, Y, or Z. God should give me a child that I've been craving. God, God should give me a promotion and a house and comfort that I've been longing for. God should. Listen, friends, don't should on God. When we should on God, when we, when we say God should do something, we're shoulding on God, and when we do that, we're revealing what we truly worship, our idols, and we're also revealing that we have a bad theology of who God is and how He works. Because when we expect God to do something that's based on something other than who He is and how He acts in the world, we're going to be disappointed and we're going to be hurt. So don't shit on God. But rather, we see in verse 4 the explicit calling. In light of the temptation to not trust God, in light of the temptation to actually resent God, we're called to delight ourselves in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, in order to do this, we actually have to take our eyes off of the stuff that we see around us, the people around us. We have to actually put our eyes squarely on the Lord in order to delight in Him properly. There's this beautiful cyclical effect in this. When we orient ourselves to find our delight and satisfaction in the Lord, it's not a promise that He's going to give us the stuff we want. It's a promise that He's going to conform us more to Himself, which means that we're going to be content with the circumstances of our life more and more as we are conformed to the likeness of God. Christ. So as we delight ourselves in Him, as we find our great satisfaction in Him, He's going to give us the desires of, of, him, of Himself. He's going to make it to where we are okay with His will as opposed to our will in this world. Does that make sense? So that's the explicit calling there. This is my favorite verse in the Bible. For as long as I can remember, this has been the one that I have thought of as my life verse and really served as sort of a life prayer for me that this would be something that the Lord allows to be true in my life. That he would allow me to be conformed more and more to his likeness through a worshipful relationship with him. The next temptation we see that would naturally result here from seeing the prosperity of the wicked, seeing the prosperity of all the ease around us when life for us seems to be so difficult would not only be that we don't trust, perhaps we resent, but also that we would just start to wonder, why would we follow after him? Why would we live this life, this Christian life, which is a life calling us to sacrifice and service of laying down our lives for others, praying, those, praying for those who curse? Why would we do that if it doesn't result in any prosperity here and now? Why, I mean, why would we do that? That's the temptation. And yet, we see the explicit calling in verse 5 and 6, saying, commit your way to the Lord. The way we should understand to be the godly path. 
the journey of the Christian life of sacrifice and service. Trust in Him, it says, and He will do what? He will act. He will act. And He tells us, the psalmist tells us in verse 6 what that might look like. He will bring forth. The Lord will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. It's a picture of God vindicating us as opposed to us trying to vindicate ourselves. It's as if the Lord is asking us to trust Him and saying, give me an opportunity to prove to you that I will care for you and be faithful to you. And friends, the only way that we can actually learn that God is truly faithful and worthy of our trust is to actually trust Him. It can't be hypothetical. It can't just be esoteric theology. We actually have to put some real stock in it, and we actually have to depend on Him. We have to trust Him in order to know that He's actually trustworthy. And so, not only would we be tempted to not trust Him, to possibly resent Him, to not follow after Him, but naturally we would result in a temptation that we wouldn't wait on Him, that we would be very, very impatient with Him in our daily lives, right? Completely impatient. But we see this verse in verse 7 calling us to something radically different. See, the temptation would be that we would, we would be self-sufficient, that we would seek to control our lives. And yet, the Lord is asking us to, in fact, not do that, to actually rely on Him with trust, and in fact, to wait him. Verse 7 says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. When it says be still, the picture I want you to have in your mind is motionlessness, just to be totally motionless, as opposed to kind of a frantic, anxious pacing before the Lord. Do you see the difference? And then it tells us to wait patiently and in Hebrew, this word wait is beautiful because it actually means to writhe with pain, to tremble, and to give birth, to be in the pains of labor. Isn't that sometimes what it feels like when we're actually waiting on the Lord to show up in our lives? Like the pains of childbirth? Now, I've never given birth, but I've, I've been there, and it, it, it is something that is very difficult to endure and yet, the hope is for what is being born, yeah? And that that far surpasses the suffering of the moment. This is qualified by saying, wait patiently for him. This isn't like Luke at the DMV. This is not that kind of frustrated, anxious kind of waiting. This is a waiting of patience, being still before the Lord, fully trusting in him. And then we see again, this refrain in, in the latter part of verse 7 telling us why. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out his evil devices. Now, I'm just going to take a guess here. And I'm going to say that I would wager that several of us here this morning can probably identify with some of these temptations. Maybe so much so that you would think that this psalm was actually written just for you. That these callings are specifically for you this morning. Well, in God's sovereignty, that's actually the case. 
That's actually how this works. That the Lord reads us through Scripture. And that you, bringing your full life and experience to the text, you are seen. It's beautiful. So I would also wager that you may be wondering, that, that sounds great. That really does sound great, trusting in the Lord and committing our way to Him. But I don't trust the Lord. So how do I do that? Well, if you're one of those asking that question or experiencing that this morning, I would just be curious, what is it that is causing you to not trust the Lord? I asked you that question at the beginning of our service. I didn't really think of it myself because I was too tuned in to the song. But if you're thinking about that for a second, just take inventory. I would wager that it's one of two things, chiefly one of two things. One being that you have been hurt by people that represent God. And through that representation, you have felt hurt by God himself. You've been burned by Christians or you've been burned by the church. That's my first wager. Seems to be a very common conversation I have with people outside of the Christian community that they don't like us because they've been burned by us in some way. That when they expected the Christian to represent dignity and love, they actually received shame and contempt, very likely. This is something that I've experienced over and over and over, and I've been guilty of myself of issuing out that shame and contempt and judgment, and I've wounded people in my life. My second wager would be that you have been hurt by shooting on God and that your expectations have not been met. You have been hurt by your expectations by God. So, what that means is that we need to understand who God is and we need to have an assurance of the hope that we have in Him in order to trust Him, to be fully committed to Him and His way. And that starts with understanding His faithfulness in our life. We can understand His faithfulness in three chief ways. In the past, the present, and in the future. The first is the past. It's simply this. The whole story of the Bible is a promise. And in fact, it's a series of promises that God keeps to bring His people to Himself. And He does it at the expense of His own Son, who has to suffer and die at the hands of wicked men so that other wicked men can be seen as righteous in God's sight. God is faithful to keep His promises in the past. We see it throughout Scripture. You see, trust can only exist in the degree that you have trust in the character of the person that you're putting that trust as well as their track record. Our God is fully holy in His character. And His track record is impeccable and immaculate. He keeps all of His promises. God is faithful in the past, and He's also faithful in the present. What that means is that He's faithful to make us more like Himself despite everything that's happened in our lives. It's not a plan B for God to make beautiful out of the things that are causing you suffering. That's the original plan. He's allowing the suffering of His Son. He's allowing the suffering of His saints to bring them to bring us into conformity to Himself. That is not an accident. Romans 8.28 says that 
We know that those who love God, all things work together for good. That's what we're talking about here. So with that, we have an assurance that he is using it all to make us more like himself and to bring glory to himself. So God is faithful in the present. But he's also faithful in the future. He's faithful to fulfill his promises in the future. As we read earlier, Romans 8.18 says, Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. So Christian Theology 101, let me just lay it out for you right here, okay? So that we all are on the same page about who God is and how he works in the world around us so we don't should on God in ways that we shouldn't, I guess. First, God allows suffering in the world, even his son. This is a really big concept. Second, he works all things for his glory and our good. And it's not a reaction. It's not a plan B. It was the original plan from the beginning. And third, this world is not our home. Our hope is not in this world, but in the glory of heaven that he promises to bring us. So these are the things that God has done, is doing, and will do. Therefore, these are the things that God should do. These are the things that God is doing and will do. So anything else is shooting on God and reveals to us our bad theology and the true idols of our heart that we're worshiping more than we're worshiping the Lord. Do you see it? So we have assurance of hope because God is faithful. We also have assurance of our hope because as this passage lays out for us so clearly, there's contrasting fates for the godless, those who reject the Lord, and for those who worship the Lord and follow after him. Let me show you what I mean. Now, before I endeavor to do this, I can't deal with the whole passage. This is one of my favorite psalms, and I can't deal with 40 verses this morning. I was teasing with a friend and said, if I try to do this, I can't do it in less than 40 minutes, certainly. Uh, it'll probably still be over 40 minutes. I'm sorry. But uh, this, this is a theme that is repeated in different pictures and different poetic ways throughout this psalm. So I'm going to try to give you sort of the exegetical key, if you will, the summary key that comes in verse 10 and 11 to help you understand this passage for yourselves as you study it, hopefully, for the rest of the week and the rest of your lives. So let's look at verse 10 and 11. It says, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So clearly, again, this refrain of impermanence is brought to, to mind from verse 10 that the wicked will be no more. They'll be like the grass of the field. Here one minute and gone the next. Um, at my house, we have this incredibly beautiful flower that springs up naturally on its own every spring. It's apparently called a hyacinth. And uh, it was planted, the, and these bulbs were planted by the people who lived in this house before we did. And so I'm surprised every spring when this thing pops up. And it's, it's radiant, beautiful. It's purple. It's got bold flowers all over it. And it's so fragrant that it's kind of intoxicating. You just kind of walk around the yard, and you're just enjoying this aroma. It's, it's wonderful. But guess what? It lasts about five days before it withers and dies, and it's gone. It's gone. Look at verse 20. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures, like the flowers of the field, which are beautiful 
but here one minute and gone the next. They'll vanish like smoke. They'll vanish away. This is the theme that you see throughout this psalm contrasting the fate of the righteous or God's people and those who reject the Lord. That whatever prosperity you see and perhaps would be tempted to be jealous of, it's all gone in a minute. It's all gone. And yet, we see the contrast with the meek. Verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This word meek is really interesting. It means gentle or mild or humble. It's not weakness. It's really more like strength under control of compassion. It's a picture of God's people sacrificing and serving, living out of the calling that we have as God's people. This is what Jesus had in mind when he speaks to us in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.5, saying, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, the meek resist the temptation to fret and to burn because of the wicked. They resist the temptation to get all out of sorts and to worry and to even take action into their own lives and to be self-reliant. They resist that temptation. They don't assert their will in the world around them, nor do they become self-reliant. They deny themselves, and they depend on God and follow His way. Look at verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Wrath being the execution of justice in your own life. This is a picture of the meek. Why? Fret not yourself. Don't worry. It tends only to evil. And that's the result of when we are not living after the meek model that Jesus has lived out for us. Matthew 10, or I'm sorry, Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12, as Jesus is concluding the uh, first section of the Sermon on the Mount, talking through the Beatitudes, he says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That sounds like the meek, doesn't it? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Sounds like the wicked prospering and carrying out evil schemes. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We should not be surprised. This is how the world treats Christians. They're going to treat us the same way. You see, the fate of the, the wicked or the godless or those who reject the Lord and the fate of those who worship the Lord is, is just throughout this psalm and it's repetitively showing that there is a, a being cut off or a destruction that happens with those who do not follow after the Lord and yet the meek, God's people, inherit the land. This doesn't mean that we inherit all the good stuff of this world. This is a picture of the eschatological kingdom, the heaven, the glory of being with the Lord in eternity, and that we would delight ourselves in abundant peace. The concept there is shalom, that we would delight ourselves in the presence of the Lord and be fully satisfied. So the rest of this passage basically repictures these contrasting fates over and over in different ways. So, so what is faithful living? Well, again, it's, it's living with faith. And it's fulfilled in Jesus, who was the truly meek man. The only truly meek man. 
who showed us what it's like to be fully surrendering of self and power for those he loved. Jesus is the only one who didn't fret because of the wicked, the wicked, but he truly surrendered his life to the wicked. Why? So that wicked men like me can be seen as righteous in his sight. So what is faithful living for us look like? It means that we're living with faith in Jesus because he's worthy of this, because he's faithful. He's faithful to keep his promises. And when we put our faith in him, it changes everything. It gives us the ability to perhaps for the first time in our lives not give in to the temptations that we would not trust the Lord, resent the Lord, that we would fret over all the evil around us and being done to us, but ultimately that we would be still before the Lord and that we would wait patiently for him to bring about his glory and our good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Psalm 37 and how it seems to read our, our mail, really. How it seems to read our hearts, uh, exposing our own temptations and calling us to, despite the uncertainties that we live with and all the ways that our lives are broken and filled with the impact of sin, Lord, to trust in you. I pray that you would comfort all of us this morning and invite us through worshiping you to experience that trust in a new and profound way. Lord, thank you for your son Christ. And we pray this morning that you would draw us into closer fellowship with you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.